I'm a, a glass half full kind of girl. So this book is a challenge for me. You will look a bit depressed. Oh dear, it's not going to get better for a while, chaps. I'm really sorry. Is this all meaningless? That's our theme for today. Is it all meaningless? Being a, a glass half full kind of girl, I typed into Google happiness. And of the four million sites that came back, the first one, I was amazed, was a news report from last November about how people in East Anglia are the happiest in the UK. Hooray, thank you. Apparently, there are two things that make us happy in the East. One, the amount of sunshine. The second was the fact we all love pizza. I'm not really sure where the link was, but this was a a video that uh, you can go on to uh, the BBC News. In fact, it was on the BBC News, and uh, it concluded that we all enjoy sitting in front of the television, watching something interesting, uh, eating pizza and chocolate, and that's what makes us happy. Meaningless. Meaningless. Happiness is one of those things that scientists, psychologists, sociologists alike have all tried to measure in some way. What really makes people happy? What really makes them content? What gives people joy in their lives? As we explore Ecclesiastes, I think we'll discover that this is an age old question. It's not something new that we've all kind of created. This is, you know, the latest research. The world that we are looking at here in Ecclesiastes is a challenging place to be, despite many of its kind of backgrounds of wealth. So what is the kind of world, what are the key elements of the Solomon era? Ecclesiastes was probably written later than Solomon, and I can talk to you lots about this because I've done lots of reading. It's very boring, so I'm not going to. But there were things that are really important to think about, about the Solomon era that this book was written into in one way or another. The first was, as you learned last week when Simon was talking about Solomon, it was a very wealthy society. If you just read about the temple and the gold and all that Solomon had, it was a wealthy society. And therefore, it was prominent among the nations. It's believed that the Queen of Sheba visited Solomon. It was a well-known nation. It was prominent. It was known But also, it was a nation of uncertainty. As we come towards the end of uh, looking at the New Testament, we, we enter the prophets and the fact that they were all looking for something more. There was the hope of the Messiah. They had realized that a king wasn't all it had cracked up to be. He couldn't save a nation. They were looking for something more. They were hunting for meaning. They were beginning to discover that despite the sacrificial system, they were still sinning and feeling dirty. They were hunting for what was the point of existing. We have wealth, we have this, we have that, but what on earth is life all about? Interesting thoughts when we compare our own society. What about our own era? We're quite wealthy. We'll look at that later. We're quite prominent among the nations as the UK. You can debate that if you want. But with that comes this level of uncertainty. Sue's already reminded us in our prayers that actually an earthquake comes along and we question ourselves. We question 
God. We live in a world of uncertainty. We live in a world where we are looking for something more. We're looking for meaning. This has led many people to say that Ecclesiastes, whilst being a slightly depressing book, is a very relevant book for us today. And I was relieved to read that as I started preparing for this. You see, our worlds aren't that difficult, different. It might be a difficult book to grasp, but it has lots of riches for us to think about for our world today. So who wrote this book? To help us grasp this, let's think a little bit about the type of person. And this will, you'll see later, help us understand a bit more about the book. See, some people say it was a sociologist who wrote it. This book is a number of reflections on life. There are two established wisdoms. One is like Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of teaching. You can kind of get all kinds of useful things like, you know, a nagging wife is like a dripping tap, things like that in wisdom. But also you have this, which is a kind of observational wisdom. I'm looking at the world and this is what I'm seeing. So some say a sociologist wrote it, somebody who was good at observing what was going on. Some say that it was more of a scientist that wrote it. It's somebody who was conducting experiments on the world around them. And you can see why they're saying this. If you uh, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find this really useful. We're going to dive in and out of this book. But this is what it says. Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and that's what does pleasure accomplish. I tried cheering myself up with wine and embracing folly, an experiment, but my mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what good for people to do under the heaven during the few days of their lives. The writer's saying, I've tested a few things out, I've conducted an experiment, and this is my conclusion, it's all meaningless. So maybe it was a scientist who wrote it. Most people reckon that this person was at the end of their life, and uh, it was a wise old sage, a teacher, and you can see that from the passage we just read, uh, or was read to us by Nigel, that it was a wise old sage looking back over their life and drawing conclusions. But for me, there's something more. I think who wrote this was an explorer. It was a mixture of perhaps all the above, but he was searching for something. An explorer is writing this. 1 verse 13 says, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on me. I have seen all these things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You'll see that little word explore by wisdom is in there. And in the Hebrew, it's the same that is used when the Israelites went into the promised land for the first time. Those spies went in. They went to explore the land that was there, to see what were the main features, to see whether they could attack. And this is the same word used here. They're exploring the culture that he is living in and asking questions about how to live in it. Our world today is full of explorers. This book is really important for us today. There is so much in here to learn. But who wrote it? 
Some say Solomon, but it's most likely there was a couple of other people later on assuming the role of Solomon. The Bible calls this guy the Kohelet. Now, my Hebrew's terrible, so I'm going to call him Q. And for those of you who are James Bond fans, we're going to use the word Q to describe who wrote it. For he was an explorer himself, always seeking for something more. So there we have it, an introduction to the book of Q, written by Q for us to learn great things. And before we delve even deeper, we're going to sing a song which I'm hoping you're going to hold on to the lyrics through the rest of the sermon. You see, when all around is fading and nothing seems to last, we can rest assured that the whole world is in God's hands. These are words I'm hoping you'll hold on to as we continue to explore in Ecclesiastes. Let's stand together. Father, may we hold on to those words as we look into your word. May it speak to us today about where we find meaning, where we find purpose. Bring alive your word to us today, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat and let's continue in this book. You really will find it useful to have it open. It's 668 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, what really is this book all about? It begins very clearly by telling us that everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. As we dig deeper into this book, though, we discover that there is something else underneath it. For whilst on the top, it seems to be saying, look, everything, completely meaningless. There is an underlying theme that says everything is meaningless without God. I'm glad that's there. I'm glad that's there. We've had uh, chapter one read to us. And together, this highlights the theme The book begins with this meaningless statement, and right at the end of it as well, it says the same thing, everything is meaningless. In fact, I uh, counted, and it says meaningless 37 times in quite a short book. You get the theme, don't you? In fact, the writer's very clever right at the beginning. You see, if you look in verse 2, it says, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That was an old Hebrew way of highlighting that it's not just a little bit meaningless, it's completely, completely, completely. Hello? Okay, good, just checking you're still awake. Depressing statement alert. Life as man lives it without God is futile, meaningless, purposeless, empty. It's a bleak picture. Nature and history go round in circles. There's nothing new. And up the profit and the loss of human life, you are better off... Oh, good. Better off dead. Life is unfair. Work is pointless. Pleasure fails to satisfy. Good living and wise thinking are rendered futile by death. Be realistic, says Ecclesiastes. If life without God is the whole story, see it for what it is. Don't pretend. Don't bury your head in the sand. This is the truth about life. Go to your non-Christian next-door neighbour and tell them that, hey? Life is meaningless without God. So what does that little word meaningless actually mean? Well, in the uh, Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, do not correct my pronunciation. The word is haval. Can you say it? Thank you. And what that literally means is vanity, without substance. 
Some scholars use it as breath, but lots of them use the word, it's just as well there's no one in the front pew, is it going to work? It's coming. Not going to work. Vapour. Don't buy one from Wilkinson's. It's not going to do my tomatoes any good. Vapour. And if it works, that would be really good, but it's not going to. Vapour. Vapour. What does vapour mean? It says that life is like vapour. All the things that we look for purpose in, it's vapour. Here one minute, gone the next. There's not much substance to it. Hold that thought as we continue on to the next phrase that's really important. Again, under the sun is mentioned more times than I could be bothered to count. I gave up at 40, um, so you can count them if you get bored in the next 20 minutes. But under the sun is mentioned again and again and again. And what on earth does this mean? It refers to the world that we can see, the world that we can observe, the here and the now. What does a man gain from his labor at which he toils under the sun? Verses one, uh, chapter one, verse three. It's repeated again and again. And basically, Q, our writer, is saying that life confined to the horizons of this world will never find satisfaction, will never find contentment. There must be more than what we can observe. There must be more than what we can see. So then the writer in the next few chapters makes an assault on all the things that we try and find purpose in. All those things in our society that we look for meaning, that we look for happiness, that we look for contentment, that we look for providing purpose. And let's look at a few of them now. He says, to begin with, that wisdom is vapour. That's an incredible statement, being that this book is placed just after the book of Proverbs. It's hardly surprising that this is the first one to be mentioned, being that this is attributed to the life of Solomon, the wisest king. His wisdom brought influence, respect, honor, and status. To be wise like Solomon was the goal of all young Jewish teenage boys. It was used as a carrot for learning. You commit to your studies and you will be wise like Solomon. Tried that with the young people, it doesn't work. The Proverbs was a book that was used to guide the young boys on how to live. And it upholds wisdom as the highest virtue. If you look in chapter 4 of Proverbs 6 and 7, do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you, love you and watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom, it says. Wisdom in this society was viewed as everything. If you are wise, you will have high status. And it is the same for us today. We're in exam season, which uh, some of you will remember well, and some of you will shake at the thought. And uh, I spend, obviously, a lot of time with the young people. And from Christmas till about June, they work so hard. From about, ooh, the time they're five, their teachers tell them, learn, learn, learn. And you will be assessed from the moment that you start school. And you will be kept going by the fact that there is another exam just around the corner. Learn, learn, learn. Now, wisdom is good. Learning is a privilege. School, for us, is a privilege. But I hate the pressure that is put on many of the young people. 
I know that they will have to revise really hard between now and then, and I urge you to pray for those who are facing big exams in the next few months. The Ecclesiastes writer is saying, wisdom is vapor. Wisdom is meaningless. See what it has to say here. For the wise man, like the fool, will no longer be remembered in the days to come, but he will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Told you it wasn't chirpy. Or the second one, the wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes both of them. Again, go tell that to your next-door neighbour or your professor at university or, or someone else who holds wisdom as esteem. Wisdom is vapour. And if this worked, you'd all be getting wet right now, but it doesn't. The second thing in the next uh, bit of this book that it talks about is pleasure. Pleasure, apparently, is vapour too. After my A-levels, myself and a few friends took ourselves to Cyprus, a beautiful place uh, where we were in the middle of a heat wave. And it was beautiful. By the second day, we were all rather pink and we were enjoying ourselves a lot. Uh, There were many other A-level students there at the same time. And during our our holiday, we were invited to a pub crawl. I'm sure some of you have done that uh, in your teens. And we arrived and told that we would be going to 12 clubs and we would be expected to drink whatever they gave us at every single one of those pubs. By pub two, I, I think wisely, decided to put Ecclesiastes 2 verse 3 into action. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, but my mind was still guided by wisdom. At that point, I decided that two glasses was enough and I would stop drinking. I drank a bit, but I stopped before I lost my my mind to wisdom. My friends, however, continued. Did this pleasure help them discover meaning? No, I'll tell you what it helped them discover. The inside of the toilet and the inside of the toilet in the coach the next day that we were travelling on to go and see some Roman ruins. Wisdom should have prevailed, but it did not, for they were seeking pleasure. This was the same when Ecclesiastes was written in the world of plenty that they lived in. They were seeking pleasure, seeking fulfilment, seeking happiness in the same ways as we do today. If you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4, we realise that it wasn't just drinking and fun and folly that uh, uh, he was kind of heading towards uh, as being vapour. He says this, I undertook great projects looking for fulfilment by having the next big thing. We all do that. What's next? What's going to get me excited next? We read that they built houses. They were looking for pleasure in the things that they owned. They planted vineyards trying to achieve the next big thing. We read that they made gardens and parks, a warning to all those who love gardening. It will not provide you with meaning, but you can still try. There are other things that uh, it says here that they tried as pleasure to find meaning I could go on. Whatever your pleasure is in life will not provide you with the meaning of life. Believe me, I've tried. I've tried gaining significance from making the perfect cupcake. It does not work. Growing the biggest strawberry, it's all vapour. 
Some of you will be pleased about the next one that he takes on. He says that work is vapor. Work is vapor. This is the uh, American poet Robert Frost at the end of the last century. And he said some words that I think are so true. By working faithfully eight hours a day, you may eventually get to be boss and work 12 hours a day. Research in 2006 saw that the average person worked 8.4 hours a day. But I'm sure many of us think that the reality of that is much more. It might only be 8.4, but it feels like 20. Work has always been a way of earning money, of providing status. And even in the days of Ecclesiastes, it was something more than perhaps just earning a crust. More land, more slaves... Therefore, more possessions, more money, more opportunities. Q writes this. There was no end to the toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For who am I toiling, he asks, and why am I depriving myself of this enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. I would not encourage you to read Ecclesiastes on the way to work on a Monday morning. It will not bless you. But hold on, there's more to come. Just keep thinking about that, but not before I have a little attack on wealth. Uh, If you look next, we're moving into kind of later bits into uh, chapters 4, 5, 6, and he, he has a good attack at wealth. He says, wealth is vapor too. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. This too is meaningless. Have you ever met people like this? Always after the next thing. What they have is never enough. There's always something new. There's always something better. There's an iPad 2. There's an iPad 3 on the way, though, chaps. There was a happiness survey conducted, uh, and the results were were given last April. And this was the guy who was heading it up, Lord uh, Layard, and uh, he took research from the last 50 years of various projects that looked at what made people happy. And he said this, and I think this is fascinating, What we actually care about is our income compared to other people. But if over time everybody is coming richer, then people don't on average feel any better off than they did before. He's saying our happiness, if it's based on wealth, is only good if someone else is paid less. Let me introduce you to the happiness research of Ecclesiastes. This is what he says. It's amazing, really, the similarities. And I saw that all labor and all achievement springs from man's envy of his neighbor. Saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. Money, wealth, owning the best next thing is like vapor. It's like vapor. Wealth, toil, wisdom, pleasure. It's all meaningless. You don't look like the happiest people in the UK presently. Let's stop for a moment. Number one, our worlds have not changed. We are still, as a society, trying to find meaning through these things, through wisdom, through toil, through work, through achievement, through pleasure. Our world 
has not changed in many ways. And number two, we're still asking the same question. What is meaning? What's my purpose in life? The questions have not changed. And even more shocking, perhaps, Christians are not exempt from this. Let's be honest. We like to sit here and think that work isn't our all at points. We like to sit here and think that actually money doesn't affect us at all. We like to sit here and think that we're not swayed by pleasure in one way or another. We like to think that we always put God first when the reality is very, very different. The battle of our time, our energy and our priorities have often left us as Christians to pursuing vapour rather than eternal purpose. This little passage in Ecclesiastes 2, I think, could be a song of our generations. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in my neighbor, and this was the reward for my toil. And when I surveyed all that my hand had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. One more depressing statement alert. This is uh, the conclusion that Q reaches in chapter 6. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage is a, man, a wise man over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing not to conduct himself before others? For all know what is good for a man in life Sorry, for who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he is gone? Everyone doesn't look very happy. Some theologians stop there and say, that is all Ecclesiastes has to say. They don't sound like glass half full type of people to me. They don't sound like the people who have looked deeper into this passage, but some of them certainly have. Fortunately, though, there are others. There are others who have written about this book and saying that, yes, it presents a realistic outlook on what the world was like in the days of Solomon. Yes, it does present what happens if you put all of your life Uh, into pursuing these things. Yes, you will reach the end and say, all is meaningless. All those things I have done. Yes, work is meaningless. But then they say, all this meaningless is for a reason. Let's turn uh, to chapter 3, will you? And if you look at verses 9 and 10, it fortunately says some other things. What does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on man. All is meaningless for a reason. God has set this world up with a need for us to work, for example. But he has not set it up that we will find our meaning in work. I praise God when I hear of people having a brilliant day at work. But God didn't set that to be our everything. 
God has created a burden for us in work so that we wouldn't look to work for all the answers to the questions we are asking. Chapter 6 says this, God gives a man wealth, possession and honour so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy them. Verse 2, God never designed you or me to find our meaning, our reason for living in things of this earth. God designed you and me to find our meaning, our reason for living in things beyond all that we can see under the sun, beyond all that we know and can see. Few. Chapter 3, this unsettledness, this uncomfortableness that God has given us should lead us to be explorers. If you look at, at verse 11, he, God, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has made us not to be fulfilled by the things we see, and he's placed something in us that seeks something more. Something more. A few years ago, when we ran the noise as a church, we did a a youth event, and we gave everybody a packet of polos. Ah, strange, you say. We were talking about the fact that God has made us all with a God-shaped hole in the middle. Nothing else will fill that God-shaped hole. Wealth is meaningless. Work, you can try filling it. It doesn't work. It just doesn't fit. Only God can provide fulfillment. Only God can provide purpose. Only God can provide meaning. Only God, something outside the realm of what we can see, is worth living for. Now this is when the book of Ecclesiastes gets a bit tricky. For I would love to find in the book those words that I've just said, that only God provides meaning, that if we turn to him, life works. You know, if I was writing it, I would have put all those things in. He doesn't. All these phrases aren't quite there. But it's important to remember that this was written before Jesus came. And actually, he didn't know all the answers apart from he had to trust in something beyond this world that was God. The answers that we are given are shrouded in a bit of mystery, not written in the manner that I'd like to see, but they are explained in some way clearly. And if we come to the end of the book, we find this, that all is vapour without God. Chapter 12 says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Finally, something clear. Fear God and keep his commands. We're not talking about being afraid of God. We're talking about putting God in his rightful place. The secret to understanding the vapour, to giving life meaning, is to put God in his rightful place in our lives. Lord, I give you my heart, my soul. I live for you alone. I put you in the rightful place. I put you first. 
I've uh, unsurprisingly written a, a blog on this, which I uploaded last night. You can have a look. But I put this on there. This is uh, from uh, an NIV commentary I was reading. By shattering all earthly gods, the writer devastates all false hope and drives the reader to the true God. He is kind of a negative theologian, exposing the fertility of life and explaining that there is something more. Life only finds purpose and meaning when you strip everything else away. It's only with God that anything of this world finds significance. My own life testifies to this. Work is hard, money gets spent, my own wisdom often runs out, too many uh, glasses of wine gives me a headache, life often seems unfair, and others' love sometimes lets me down. Oh, and at some point, I'm going to die. However, with God in a rightful place in my life, i.e. right at the centre, life is very different. Work is hard, but I can know I'm being used by God. I can rely on God's wisdom rather than my own. I don't bother with too many glasses of wine because I don't want to get a headache. Life is still unfair, but I know that one day I will know why. And there is one whose love will never let me down. Oh, and at some point I am going to die, but then I'll have eternity to be spent with God. Hallelujah. This is what the writer of Ecclesiastes leaves us to think. He recognises there is something beyond what we can see, a God in heaven, as he says in verses uh, chapter 5. He says there is more. You must fear God. And more than that, you must trust in something that is beyond what you can see. This is 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 5. And you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in the mother's womb, so you cannot understand the works of God's maker of all things. There is something beyond what we can see. There is a God we can trust beyond what we can see. Jesus talks of this, doesn't he? in the New Testament, skipping ahead a little bit. It says, Do not store up the things for yourself, treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. It says there's something more. There's something more. Paul writes this as well. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Jesus says the same thing. Paul concludes the same thing after observing and experiencing life without God. He says all is meaningless, all is lost, all is garbage without knowing and being known by God. An important message for us as we come into Holy Week again. There are grace notes in this book of Ecclesiastes that leave us waiting, leave us hanging for the coming King. There are some points here where we're saying, you will know at some point, meaning wise cue, for the Lord is coming, the Messiah is coming. Hallelujah. 
Some chair claim that uh, worshipping the God of heaven is a theme here within Ecclesiastes. And as we're coming into land, let's just think of this for a moment. It's perhaps the clearest passage of teaching in the whole book. Chapter 5, stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of God. Worship the God in heaven. You see, you need to fear him, you need to trust him, and your lives should be about worship. Because all is vapour without God, you need to worship him. And here, if you look in uh, chapters, uh, uh, chapter 5, we learn that we need to enter the presence of God and listen. Listen. It's the same word uh, used here as in Samuel and Hosea when they enter the presence of God and are told to be silent and just listen. But it's more than that. It's listening with ears to understand and ears to obey The writer is saying, come to God, come ready to listen, to understand and obey. Don't rush into your presence with God. Come to God and listen. And remember, therefore, who your God is. 5 verse 2 puts me and you clearly in our places. It says here, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words be few. Remember who God is. Remember who your God is. And therefore, keep your vows. Rash words come from a hasty heart, says the writer of Proverbs. And here it says almost the same thing. Empty words are meaningless. If you mean them, say them. And if you don't, don't. All is vapour without God, but with God, but with God, with trusting him, fearing him and worshipping him, even the vapour can provide joy. Phew. Chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. I know there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toil. This is a gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away. God does it so that men will revere him. Ultimately, everything is meaningless. But with God, in his grace, even meaningless things can bring joy and contentment. Jesus used this phrase when he said, I come to give you life to the full. He came to give complete meaning to life. He came to even redeem the vapour of this world so it can be used for his purposes. Work, wisdom, money, wealth, relationships, achievement, time, all need to be seen in the light of our relationship with God. Work can be used for God. Wisdom can help us make wise decisions. Money and wealth can be used justly and wisely. Relationships are to be for God, ordained by God, used by God. Time is to be committed to God. You get the picture. Q concludes uh, with a verse that you probably can't see because it's, oh no, it's all right up there. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love. 
all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither work, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. He can't even say anything positive without putting a negative spin on it, can he? But what he is essentially saying is, life is to be enjoyed, but don't put your trust in the vapor of this world. Put your trust in God and God alone. Let's stand together in a a moment. And we're going to just respond with a few songs. Uh, I'd love you just to stay seated, actually. And we're going to sing, these guys are going to sing us some words uh, that come directly from chapter 5. And as you do, you might just want to think of these few questions. What meaningless things do you hold on to in attempt to provide meaning? Maybe even as Christians you're challenged today to say, yes, I'm pursuing some meaning from here. I want to be different. How do we turn the vapor of this life into something that is used for God? How will my work reflect my relationship with God tomorrow? How will my family time, how will my spending of my wealth, my money, how will I use my wisdom for God? What am I going to do that's different? Having vaguely understood perhaps what Ecclesiastes is saying.